What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. <laughs> Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is Fee Waybill of the Tubes. Fee, good to have you here. Bob, thank you for having me. I, I, I appreciate it. That's great. Okay, let's start right from the beginning. In your everyday life, are you Fee or are you John? Well, it depends on who you're talking to, I guess. My wife calls me Fee, Elizabeth, and everybody in my family calls me Fee, but then... uh I, I, at the tennis club, they could call me fee, but at the polo club, I play polo. And, uh, when I first started playing polo, I tried to disguise the fact that I was some rock guy and I told them my name was John. So they all call me John. Okay. Polo is known as the sport of Kings. How does a rock star end up playing polo? Well, I was raised on a horse. My brother and I have been horsemen our whole lives. My dad was a riding instructor and a uh, horse show judge. So we grew up in Scottsdale, Arizona, and we're on a horse from the time I was about five years old until I bailed out at 18. I was on a horse. And, uh, and my brother, I moved to California and obviously got into music and uh, my brother stayed, and he still lives in Scottsdale, Arizona, and he would always, and he has horses, and he was the one that, I mean, he's done everything. He's done roping and herding and every kind of discipline on a horse, and he would always ask me, well, how come you don't get a horse? And I said, you know, well, I live in San Francisco, okay? There's not a lot of horses around here, and and then he, he uh he got into polo in Scottsdale and he goes, okay, now I found something that really is fun and really great. And, and by that time I had moved to LA and there's, you know, he says, you got to try this. You got to get back on the horse and try this. You're going to love it. And so I said, okay, I did. And I went to the California polo club and they said, uh, I said, I want to learn. It's an arena club. 
it's uh, arena is like arena football. It's a smaller version of outdoor polo. And they said, okay, first lesson's free. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, okay. And I just immediately, I loved it. I love to be back on a horse again. And so I've been playing for 20 years. Okay. So how extensive is the polo scene in Southern California? Well, it's not, I mean, there's, there's the Santa Barbara Polo Club, which is pretty high end. And we have an arena club here in, in, in LA. And there's also the Will Rogers Polo Club in LA. And then in California, there's one in San Diego. There's one in uh, Orange County. There's one up on San Luis Obispo. There's one in Temecula. Yeah, there's a bunch of them. There's a bunch of clubs all around this. And they are, and in the winter, in out in the desert in Indio, that's big time polo. They have people come from all over the USA to play polo out there. How good a polo player are you, and how often do you play? <laughs> I play usually well right now my horses are out at pasture you have to let them rest and i actually next monday i'm going up to get them and bring them back to the club and then i'll play through the spring and summer uh i'm a one or a two they they handicap you from minus two to ten being best and so i started as a minus two and i got better and they raised me to minus one and then zero and then one and then two and so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just a recreational player. I'm, you know, I, I, a lot, I, I really try to protect myself and protect my horses and never, never get too, you know, too ultra competitive, you know, where I'm going to hurt myself or, or, or injure one of my horses. So how often do you play? I play, uh, usually I play Saturday and Sunday morning, and then sometimes I play Thursday night under the lights. So it's, Two to three times a week. And how many people in arena polo as opposed to regular polo? Regular polo is four on each, four, four on four. Arena polo is three on three. And how dangerous is it really? Because I've certainly <laughs> seen a number of polo matches and it looks dangerous for those who are not horse savvy. Yeah, it's dangerous. And, you know, my wife keeps, my wife is really, you know, she really worries about me. And I mean, people die. You know, if you're riding down the field full blast on a horse and it stumbles and you hit the deck, you could break your neck really easily and die. Uh, but in arena polo, you don't ever really, it's only a hundred yards by 50 yards. So you don't really get to full speed in that short a distance. And it's not as dangerous, but people fall off and they, you know, they break their leg and break their elbow and break their wrist and, I've, I've had a couple of injuries, but nothing serious, you know, just, I, I like cracked a rib once, but you know, nothing, nothing too serious. And, and we play with girls, right? And so it's a co-ed sport and nobody wants to slam the girls into the wall. It's, our club is very recreational. Nobody is trying to, you know, win money or trophies or anything like that. It's just fun. We just, have fun. What's the key to being a great polo player? Number one, you can't think about riding. You have to be a good rider. You can't think about falling off the horse. And you have to, uh, you know, it's just hand to eye. You know, I played baseball my whole life. And a, and a ball, a polo ball is about the size of a softball. It's about that big around, arena ball. And, you know, you have a mallet. And you hit the ball and, you know, there's a lot of rules and you just have to, 
you have to, you have to be aware, be aware of the horse and the arena and all the other people. And it's just, and then be able to hit the ball. You know, I, I never had a problem hitting the ball. So, and once I learned to ride again, I, you know, it's, it's easy. It's fun. So you're saying an arena ball as opposed to 4-4 four, four is a different size ball? The arena ball is about the size of a softball. It's like a soccer ball, inflated leather. And, a, and an outdoor ball is about the size of a baseball, and it's solid plastic, really hard, solid plastic. So, yeah, at the, the arena ball, you, you can use the wall to bounce it off the wall. It's it's more, it's it's it bounces, you know. Historically, polo is seen as expensive. Is it expensive? Well, it depends on what level of polo you play. If you're if you're going to Indio, if you're going, I mean, polo is a big time in Florida. And if you travel to Florida, and if you have, you know, if you have really expensive horses, it can be really expensive. But but. Then again, it can be reasonably inexpensive. I, you know, my horses, I think the most expensive horse I, I had, I bought, ever bought was like $5,000. Oh, okay. And, but people pay $100,000 for a polo horse. It just all depends on how high a level you want to play. And how much does it cost to keep a horse for a year? For a year? Well, the board at my club is $750 a month per horse. And that includes feed and and lodging, and that also includes a a groom to tack up your horse and to wash your horse and basically exercise your horse. They they exercise six days a week to stay. You know they they're athletic, and so it's not that expensive. Our club we have a great club. California Polo Club is a great club, and it's not that expensive to play. People can start, and you know you can take a lesson for like. Hundred bucks, you can take a lesson, and and learn to play, and then, of course, then you have to get a horse, and you have to get a saddle, and you have to get a bridle, and you have to pay the board, and yeah, you, you know, it adds up. So, since you know this so so much about horses, what is going on with all the horses dying in horse racing, especially in Southern California? I know, I know, it's terrible. Well, no one really knows. I've read a lot about it. Uh, and some people say it's a bad track. Uh, you know, uh, sometimes they use artificial, uh, instead of just a dirt track, it's, it's some kind of artificial composite. And people say that's bad. But uh, the ones in Santa Anita where the horses, so many horses died, uh, they don't know. I mean, horse racing is a bad sport. You know, horse, people spend millions of dollars on racehorses, and then when they don't win, they tell their trainer, you know, I spent a million dollars on this horse. It needs to win. Do whatever the hell you have to do to get it to win. So what do they do? They give them drugs. They give them, it's that simple. It's, a, they, they load these horses up with drugs and And, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes they bleed, sometimes they push them too hard. The other thing I don't like about horse racing is they start them when they're two years old. That's too young for a horse to start racing full speed. They're not grown yet. Their bones are not fully formed. 
in polo, you know, in Argentina, which is polo is the national sport in Argentina, they don't even start training a horse till they're five or six years old. So two years old or three years old is just too young to force a horse to run as fast as it could go. And that's what happens. You know, they, all kinds of things happen and, you know, they, it's, it's about money. That's what it's about, Bob. It's about money. And they don't want to say that, oh no, it's, it's, you know, because it's money and it's all about money. And they don't want to close down Santa Anita because they're making a ton of money. And, you know, the people who are, the people want to race and they want to win money. And that's, you know, it's, that's what it's about. So you also said you play tennis. Are you a good athlete in general and doing a million things or these are just your two sports? No, I, I, I've always been athletic. And uh, of course, being the lead singer of the tubes was always pretty athletic when I'm doing 10 or 15 costume changes in a show, you know? Uh, but uh, I played, my dad started little league in Scottsdale, Arizona back in, gosh, it was 1956. And uh, I started playing baseball from the time I was eight years old and played baseball all, you know, all the way through school, through high school. And then, and then even, even continued playing fast pitch softball until, you know, until about 2003 or 2004. And then fat men's fast pitch softball kind of disappeared and it became a women's sport. And that's when I switched to polo, but I've always been athletic. I've always had some kind of sport. And my wife is a unbelievable tennis player. She's played her whole life through high school and college and and uh, she is a great player. And she's she convinced me to start taking polo lessons, you know, at 70 years old. And uh, because basically she would love me to stop playing polo and start playing tennis instead. Okay, so she convinced you to play take tennis lessons. Yes, yes, she did. Okay, because you said, Paul, I want to make it clarify. Let's go back to the very beginning. I always thought your name was completely made up. Waybill is your real last name? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's my real last name. Can you give us any history of that? Because I always think of shipping in Waybill. Do you know where it comes from? Yeah, yeah. A Waybill is the list of stuff they they're hauling in the back of the truck. Yeah, and uh, uh, well, it's my father's father. His name was JL. Uh, came from England, and uh, names that end in two L's are usually an English name, and. Uh, that was their name back in England that they, it wasn't changed. That was, you know, before they had the term waybill, there was waybills. There was a history of the family of waybills. They were from, uh, uh, Brighton, bright Bristol or Brighton. I think Brighton, England is where my family came from. Okay. And why fee for the, uh, less than knowledgeable? Ah, uh, boy, that's, um, well, fee was shortened from Fiji. And one back in the old days, when we were all living in San Francisco, living together in a two-bedroom condemned house on Noriega Street, the 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 bass player uh 
thought that I looked like the king of Fiji, which I could never understand. The king of Fiji was a black man with an afro about that big. And they started calling me Fiji. And I, you know, you can't pick your own nickname. That's for sure. Back in our era, they had nicknames. Right. People today don't have them. So I was Fiji. And I was Fiji up until the time uh, the our, our bass player, Rick Anderson, still calls me Fiji. He calls me Fiji, F-E-E-J, Fiji. Uh, and when we made our first record in 1975 for A&M Records, uh, they wanted us to put, they said, okay, well, what's your name? And, and, and I thought Fiji, I, I didn't want to, I, I shortened it then from Fiji. I took the J off from Fiji to Fee. And I thought the fee for the waybill. Oh yeah. It's kind of like Terry cloth or, you know, right. Very good. Okay. You mentioned your wife. How long have you been married? I have been married well on and off for. 30 years. 30 years to the same woman. To the same woman. What's the on and off part? Well, we got married and then in we got we met in 91 at a Mayan temple in Guatemala on a solar eclipse. January July 11, 1991. We met and we were on separate vacations. She was on a vacation with some English school teacher from Santa Monica and I was on a vacation with my best friend and we we were Mayanists we were we went there to look at Mayan temples and we were do, both into Mayan history and we met at the Mayan ruin of Tikal on July 11th and uh the guy that she was with recognized me and you know came walking out of the jungle and said hey you're Fee Waybill from the tubes and I just went and then I immediately fell in love with his girlfriend. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so we spent the day together. And then they, at the end of the day, we're going back to Belize where we were staying and they're going back to Santa Monica. And I said, you know, I didn't know, I, I was desperate to try to reach this person. And, you know, so I, it's funny, I asked the guy, I said, he had a video camera. A, one of those giant video cameras and the whole day he was taking video. And so at the end of the day, I said, Randy, you know, could I get a copy of the video, which was a ruse? And he goes, oh, sure. Call me when we get back to Santa Monica. And I said, okay. And so I did. And then I said, yeah, I, I, I need a copy of the video. Yeah. I said, oh, what, a, what about Liz? What about that girl you were with Liz? He goes, oh, nothing. Nah, nothing. Would give me no information at all. And uh, so I went and got the video and I said, asked again. He goes, no, no, she's no, it's not happening. And uh, so I kind of gave up on that. And then eight, that was July, eight months later in February of 92, I'm working out at the Santa Monica Athletic Club and she walks in the door of the club. And she was, she wasn't even a member. She was the guest of a member. And I saw her and she saw me and I just kind of went, Oh my God, I can't believe it. And then we started dating and live. And then we got married in, we got married in 97, got divorced in 2001, went separate ways. Uh, and, and then 
we got back together in uh, 2008, like six, seven years later, we got back together. And then we got married a second time on the 28th anniversary of the day we met, which was July 11th, uh, 19, what, uh, 20, 2018, we got married a second time. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Okay, a couple questions. Have you been married before? No. Okay. Have any children? No. Okay. What happened in those seven odd years when you were <laughs> separated? Why'd you get divorced and why'd you get back together? And were you divorced just on paper seeing each other or were you really separate in those eras? No, we did. We, you know, I was living in a little house in Sherman Oaks. You know, we just, you want to know the truth. I was back then when marijuana was not legal, I was growing pot in the backyard and was smoked pot all day long. And finally, she says, God, I, I can't handle it. You just smoke pot all day long. And then we got divorced. And then, you know, I I went on, no, and we didn't see each other for seven, six, seven years. I, I uh, you know, the tubes reformed. I went back on the road. She uh, uh, 
went to work and and became a commercial real estate agent and then invested in commercial property and and took over her dad's business of so she went to work and I went to work and and then uh it's funny you know my dad uh my dad besides being a riding instructor my dad was a chief engineer of one of the very first resort hotels in Scottsdale called the Valley Ho and so he knew how, he knew everything my dad knew plumbing and electrical and carpentry and he could do anything and he taught my brother and I to do that he he taught us everything he taught us plumbing he taught us electrical he taught us carpentry so i can fix anything pretty much and elizabeth was tr- was running this business and getting screwed by various vendors, by the plumber, by the electrician, by she didn't know, you know, if they were any good or she didn't know if they were charging her too much. She just, you know, that wasn't something that she really understood. And so one day she called me up and she goes, you know, I don't know if this is a good plumber or not. You know all about plumbing. Can you help me with this? Can you can you check this guy out and find out if he's just, you know, overcharging me or, you know. And I said, okay. And so, uh, so I did. So I helped her out and I, you know, I got her a new plumber and I got her a new, new electrician and, uh, a new air conditioner. You know, I pretty much fired everybody she had and got somebody better. And, you know, we started working together and, uh, on commercial property and, uh, and then that kind of rekindled the romance and, uh, but I had never, you know, I wrote a, I used to, I used to live in a little house in Venice and I would lay, I would sit up all night and I'd get hammered and smoke pot and, or, or drink and write poetry for her, to her. And, and then I'd send, I text her poetry and I finally put a, a book together, a poetry book. And, but it was all to, and it worked. It kind of, she kind of went, God, you're, you still, anyway, we got back together because of the poetry book. And, uh, and then, you know, we started living together and, and, uh, we got married again. So, and we still, we're together. I'm sitting in, she's an artist. She loves art and she's very, besides being a great tennis player, she's a wonderful artist. And so we turned our garage into an art studio. So we've got this, you know, the cars are parked on the street, but we have this, that's where I'm sitting now. We have this gorgeous studio downstairs that used to be the garage. And now we have a little kitchen and a little bathroom. And she comes down here and just is in heaven and has a great big wall. I'm looking at this gigantic wall where she's working on a piece that's, gosh, it's it's got to be 10 feet by 8 by 10 or something giant. And uh, so... You know, so I'm just happy as a clam and so lucky, you know, and. Uh, so you're about to play some live dates. What's the thinking about playing those live dates? Why? With the tubes, you mean, or with my solo? Uh, I, 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 I'm, I was about to play. In fact, it was the first gig was supposed to be tomorrow. Uh, I, I, I did the solo album. Uh, my fee way bill rides again. And which I sent to you, by the way, and uh, and I put together uh, 
with my best friend Richard Marks. I put Richard Richard wrote the songs and produced it with me, and uh, he's the guy's beyond brilliant and has been my best friend for gosh since we met in in the studio with David Foster back in 1983 and we've written songs all these years and so we made this record and uh and I've never done a solo show ever and he said why don't let's do a solo show he said you can use my band I'll help you we can put it together and you can use my band and let's do let's do some gigs we've never done it and so we were supposed to have done gigs this weekend, a gig in Phoenix, the, in the Troubadour in L.A., and then a gig in Orange County at the Coach House. And, uh, but that, you know, we had it all set up, and then Omicron happened. And then it, the whole thing you know, collapsed and people are afraid to go out still. And, you know, so, so we've postponed it. We've postponed the gigs till the end of the summer, but then we've got tubes gigs. We've got, we're, we're playing in March uh, in Chicago and Minneapolis and Omaha. And then we've got gigs coming up throughout the year. And, uh, you know, why am I doing it? Why? Because that's what I do. And uh, I, I, I live for the stage. And I, I mean, it's, I mean, you saw me, you, you went to that David Bowie gig, right? In Atwater village. Well, yeah, I, I absolutely did. I've seen you and I saw you in the Roxy in 75. I totally get it, but let's, let's go a couple of different angles. A, Usually the life of a rock star who is not commercially mega successful is very challenging financially. How have you made it through all these decades? I guess I've just watched my money, watched my life. I've, I've invested. I've invested in our commercial properties, you know, thanks to Elizabeth uh, get, helping me. And so I've invested in that. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not extravagant. I I don't drive a Lamborghini SUV <laughs> and you know I just uh uh I just created life for myself that that I could I could deal with that I could afford you know and and uh uh it's been challenging it has been challenging you know but uh up till the point of the pandemic, you know, we, 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 the tubes signed with a management company just like in the beginning of, for, for years and years, we had no manager and I was the manager and I did everything. And, but we signed with, uh, Jonathan Wolfson, uh, and Jonathan also manages Holland Oats and Loverboy and the tubes. And, and, oh, uh, once again, a friend of Elizabeth's, thanks to her, got us an introduction with him. And he came to see us out at the Canyon Club in Agora Hills. And he took us on. And it kind of changed everything. We we worked a ton in 2019. We made a lot of money. And uh, Jonathan has really, really helped us and really kind of changed everything for us. And... Uh, and then, of course, the pandemic hit. So it's been challenging to de deal with that and 
you know, make it through that. But, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's amazing. And I never thought this would happen, but people, people just, our songs have endured and people come and people come back to see us again and again and again. And it's, it's, uh, like I said, I never would have thought that, but, uh, and I think also that, you know, we're very visual, unlike most bands, and we constantly change our show. And like right now, we're doing this, we're doing the Completion Backward Principle album, and we're kind of visually recreating it with the business suits and the whole kind of sarcasm and corporate uh, parody that created the record. And, and then, you know, next year we'll change it completely and we'll do a completely different show and there'll be different costume changes and we'll, you know, and it's just every time you come to see the tubes, it's different. And we're doing a, a visual, uh, a visual, you know, portrayal of, of what a record or a song or whatever. And, uh, I don't know. It's just we've we we're so lucky to have endured this many years and to be this healthy, and you know everybody in the band's really healthy and the, everybody really wants to play, and so it's just been it's just been wonderful. You know, a couple of decades back, Bill Spooner, who was one of the creative forces in the band, separates from the band. What happened there? Ah, uh, well, I don't know how to couch this, <laughs> but drugs. Drugs happen. That's pretty uh, definitive explanation. Let's also talk about the era in terms of the tubes and also your songwriting with Richard Marks and with Toto. Do you have a royalty stream, or is that stuff pretty much in the rearview mirror? If there ever was, no, no, I do. I still own that. I do, and that also helps. I never sold my publishing or my writers' royalties, so I do have a publishing stream, and also. As strange as it may seem, after 40 years, we actually recouped <laughs> with Universal. Because, <laughs> you know, Universal owns everything. Right. And they bought A&M and they bought Capital, where all of our product originated. And so we get royalty checks, hard as it may be to believe, from Universal uh, twice a year. So, yeah, we do have a royalty stream. I mean, it's not massive. It's not like Richard Marx's royalty stream where, you know, he sold 40 million records and and owns it all. You know, he, every record was a license. So uh, it's not like that. But uh, it's really it really helps, you know, and and I, I'm the I, you know, I've I do I, I pretty much do everything. I'm the publishing administrator. I'm the. You know, I'm, I, I, I kind of, I do the merch, I book the tour, I book the hotels, I book the cars, I book the air. Uh, and lately, Elizabeth has taken over, uh, some of the, uh, some of the work with me and she helps us with the merch and helps with the VIP meet and greet. And she kind of become my, my, uh, mentor and road manager, personal assistant. 
and and nurse. She's the she's the sexy nurse in the show now. So that's all a plus. Okay, and do you charge the other guys for doing all that work? No. Okay, let's go back to the beginning. So, yeah, you grew up in the 50s and early 60s, short haircuts, rah-rah, et cetera. The Beatles come along. Oh. Were you into music? Were you transformed? Did you want to be into it? What happened then? Oh, and I've done, I've done this interview. Uh, the Beatles just, Beatles changed my life. The Beatles made me want to be a rock and roll singer. And it changed everything. When the Beatles came out, uh, uh, I was a, I was a freshman in high school, and uh, when the Beatles came out, that's all I could think about. And I actually I you know I wanted to be a baseball player, and I you know and it all it all became. I went to this high school, Scottsdale High, and back then we had an unbelievable theatrical department. We had a a whole building that was dedicated to theater arts. And we had a shop and we had a giant auditorium. We had a 3,000 seat auditorium where we could do plays. I did like from the time I was- you did, a, Wait, just to be clear, you mean 3,000 seats, right? Yeah. Why, what oh, I, thought you, I thought you said 30,000. Maybe I missed- No, no, no. 3,000 seat auditorium. And we would do plays. You know, I did- I did plays all the way through high school. I did Sound of Music and Music Man and Little. I played Little Abner as a ninety-pound weekly, <laughs> and we did dramatic. We did Cyrano de Bergerac, and we did student. We did. I just did plays, and we and I was in this. We had a a, a vocal group. It was called the Scottsdale Singers, and it was a group of about forty people. You know. Uh, Soprano, alto, tenor, bass, about 10 of each. And we would perform. I mean, we would go to like state competitions of choral competitions. And we would perform like Baroque to Bach and Handel's Messiah and all these really complicated pieces. Uh, and, uh, and so I spent all that time singing these classical type stuff wanting to be a rock singer and listening to the Beatles all day long and letting my hair grow. We used to have a, a, a rule. If your hair touched the collar of your shirt, you got expelled. And I mean, back then, you know, you had to, you couldn't wear jeans. Believe me, I remember. You had to wear a collared shirt, you know, you couldn't. And, and you know, I think, you know, I was going to say, my, uh, I think I, 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 I got it. And, and, you know, today I still, I still have the voice I had when I was a kid. I can sing all these songs still and I love it. And, but I think, uh, my mother was a singer before my, my mother. I, I was born in Omaha, Nebraska and my mother lived in Omaha and my mother's family, my mother's mother, immigrated from Sicily. She couldn't speak English. I was, I'm half Sicilian and half English. And, uh, and my mother, and back then, you know, if you were Italian, it was kind of second class citizen, you know, it's like, you know, uh, it, it's funny. I just read the, uh, the Kaplan book on Sinatra, uh, 
the two books he wrote, The Voice and The Chairman. And when he was young, that's the way they treated Italians. They were they were second-class citizens. If you were an Italian, you were either a, a, a mob guy or, you know, you were a... So anyway, she but she was a singer. And before she got married, she used to sing with big bands that came through town. And they would, they would, she was like the one they hired to sing, you know, begin the begin and the standards that the big bands would play. Tommy Dorsey, she's played with Tommy Dorsey. And, uh, so I think I kind of got that gene. And it, we, my house was, when I was a kid, we sang all the time before the Beatles. We all, you know, she, my mom loved Broadway musicals and we would always get, uh, Broadway soundtrack albums. And we had a great big record player, one of those giant 78 cabinet record player things. And we would sing all day long and we're always singing. She was singing. I was singing. My brother really wasn't much of a singer, but I really just, you know, dove in and, uh, West Side Story. When West Side Story came out, I flipped out and I learned all of the songs on West Side Story. And I, actually, I have. Have you seen the movie, the new movie lately? No, I have not seen the new movie. I have not seen it either. I don't know how Stephen Sondheim is going to work. You know that some of the lyrics in When You're a Jet are not exactly politically correct anymore. You see, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the Scottsdale Singers were famous. We, we used to win the state competitions for choral groups. And so every, you know, everybody knew about the singers and they had like special jackets with, with a, with, you know, a emblems. And, you know, it was, it was a big deal in Scottsdale. It was a small town. And, uh, I mean, there was, when I moved to Scottsdale, there were still hitching posts in front of the grocery store and you could ride your horse to town. And hitch it up in front of the grocery store and get your groceries for your family, put them in your saddlebag and ride back home. Uh, but anyway, uh, so when I was b- before my freshman year of high school, uh, they held auditions for, you know, there was the Scottsdale Singers was, was like a, a varsity group. It was mostly all juniors and seniors, but there was a freshman version of it that, you know, you could get in the freshman version. And then after a couple of years, move up to the, to the singers. And, uh, so I wanted, you know, you had to audition for, for the, for the, the two directors. The freshman director was. His name was Debs Valentine, and the the senior director was Joe Esley. His name was Joe Esley, and they got Joe Esley changed my life too. And uh, so I auditioned, and I signed up, and I sang Maria from West Side Story, a cappella, and they were, uh, and so. Joe Esley was so impressed that he said, look, Debs, this, I'm, I want this guy. So I was the first guy ever to be put straight into the senior, to the varsity Scottsdale singers and didn't have to go the, through the freshman route and in the freshman group. 
So I went straight to the singers as a freshman. And, you know, after a year or two, he started giving me the solos, the arias in in Handel's Messiah and various things. And he would just, it's funny, he would just, you know, he would constantly go, you know, no, do this, do this, do this. He, he was always, you know, trying to help or, and, you know, I was an idiot. I was a fucking idiot. So I, I, you know, I would say, you're, you know, you're on my case. And I would, oh, I used to always think he's on, he's, why is he on me, on me, on me all the time? And so one day I went into his office and I said, you know, Mr. Esley, why, why are you, it's always me. Why are you always on me? And he goes, you know, and he sat me down in his desk and he goes, you have got something special, you know? You're, you've got a great voice and you've got something special. And he was also the director of all the plays too. And he says, you, and, and I'm not going to let you just slough it off. I'm not going to let you ignore it. You've got to, you've got to, to develop. You've got to do, you've got to do this. You can't just let it slide. And so I kind of went, Oh, wow. Really? And so. I mean, he was the one that cast me as little Abner as a 90 pound weakling. And I'm going, Mr. Esley, am I, you know, little Abner is a big stud, you know, he's a big muscle bound guy. I said, do I, do I wear a big muscle suit? Are you going to make me a big muscle suit to wear? And he says, no, you just have to think big. <laughs> I said, he says, when Pappy Yoakum jumps off the roof into your arms, you better be thinking big. <laughs> okay. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. 
You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. Okay, so you graduate from high school, you go to college, and you drop out. Why do you drop out? Oh, God. I started being an anthropology major. I still love anthropology. I love I love the whole genre. And then I switched to oceanography, right? I'm in Arizona, and I'm obsessed with the ocean. And I want to go to Scripps Institute. I want to transfer to – well, you know, that's not going to happen. And, you know, we – Arizona uh, – we did my family didn't have a lot of money. My both my mom and dad worked and I was a latchkey kid, me and my brother, and uh we went to Arizona. I went to Arizona State because if you were a resident, you know, the tuition was minimal. And uh and uh so and also I decided, well, I'm gonna be a serious actor now. No more of this musical comedy stuff. I'm gonna do Ibsen and Chekhov and Macbeth and so I went straight to the drama department and, and I started doing those kinds of plays. And, and then finally, I went, I, I, I finished my freshman year and then kind of halfway through my sophomore year, I, fr- I flipped out and I just went, this is boring. Oh my God, you know, God, I don't want to do this. And, uh, and, you know, I, 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 I had a group of friends that we used, and we were all into music. And we used to go. One of the one of the guys in the group had this trailer. He lived in a trailer way outside of town on Baseline Road. And so we would all go out there. You know, five or six of us would go out to his trailer. His name was Terry Terry Malloy, and and we would play music. And and smoke pot, okay. We'd play music and smoke pot all all night long, and uh, you know. And I had moved. This is when I was. I had moved out of the out of. I mean, I moved out of my parents' house the day I turned eighteen, and I had a job, and I got an apartment in Tempe near the college, and I had a job, and uh, I worked at this pottery store, which is kind of ironic because my my wife is now totally into pottery. And we have a we have a wheel and we have a kiln and she's making stuff all day long. So, uh, but I worked in this pottery store and uh, I used to pack cactus, little baby cactuses, in boxes to send to like Minnesota, where it would instantly die because there's. A, you know, it's too cold for cactus. That's why they're not growing in Minnesota, is it? And uh, uh, so, so Terry found out, you know, and and we were all kind of of the same, you know, tune in, turn on, drop out. It was kind of, and we took LSD and, 
you know, it was a world of kind of Timothy Leary world. Uh, and he found out about this uh, town in northern Arizona. There's a town called Jerome. On the ver- it's, it's on the side of a mountain called Mingus Mountain, and it's in the Verde Valley. It's about midway in the middle of the state of Arizona. And there used to be a gigantic copper mine there run by a company called Phelps Dodge Mining. And they, they, they dug all, I mean, the whole town was full of tunnels and, and caves where copper mines, tunnel, where they would mine the copper. And so they eventually, they sucked out all the copper in the mountain and they said, okay, well, that's it. We're done. And they left and they left and they, they had a whole lot of people working for them, these miners. And the miners all had little shacks on the side in the town of Jerome. And Jerome was pretty much a ghost town. It was abandoned. There was nobody there left. And once the mine left and all the miners left, it was a major ghost town. There was nothing. There was like one bar. There was no gas station. There was one, there wasn't a hotel. There was nothing. There was just a few people, really, you know, seniors, seniors that had lived there the whole life and they didn't leave. So Terry says, you know, we can, we can move to this ghost town and there's all these miners shacks and nobody gives us, they don't care. You could just have one. You can just squat in one. You can just homestead one. We used to say homestead. And we went, oh, really? Okay. So like eight of us moved to Jerome. We just, we said, that's it. And I quit school. My parents freaked out. I mean, completely freaked out. And we moved to this little town and I had my own miner's shack. Everybody got their own miner's shack. And there's no, this was, you know, there's no indoor plumbing. Okay. So we had an outhouse. There was, uh, the electricity had all been turned off. So there was no electricity either. So you had like, like hurricane lamps for, for light. And we all just, we had, we had nothing. We, I had no money. I remember I had eight cents in my jeans. And I had eight cents in there for a long, long time. And we used to go from various people would, ha- would have dinners. You know, they would, they would say, okay, well, dinner's at my house tonight. So we'd all go there. And my dad used to bring me t- a 25 pound bag of brown rice from Phoenix. And so I, when I got a bag of brown rice, I'd have dinners. Okay. Well, and we have a big dinner of brown rice. And I, I mean, gosh, I lived there for probably, this was January of 1968. And I lived there for about four or five months, maybe, with absolutely nothing. No money, no nothing. And just, you know, we were a bunch of hippies. We're surviving. And we loved, we had a great time. You know, people would come up from the city and they would bring drugs. You know, we'd Okay, so how do you make it? From the boonies to being a roadie for what it becomes the tubes. Well, uh, I'm going to tell you, uh, I finally got sick of having no money. So 
uh, I heard about this rancher who was looking for cowboys. He's looking to hire a couple of cowboys. He needed help. His name was Dave Perkins. And so I went to Dave Perkins and he was, uh, there's a town in Arizona called Perkinsville. Uh, his father was this patriarch of Perkinsville and his father drove a herd of 2,600 longhorn cows from Texas all the way to Arizona, you know, when he was a kid. And he had five sons and he owned all this property. He was the big deal. And each of the five sons had a ranch. He gave each of them their own cattle ranch. So Dave was the youngest son and he had his own cattle ranch. And the other guys were pretty much redneck cowboys. I, you know, they were, they were, shall we say, a conservative group, (laughs) except for Dave. And Dave was a little forward thinking. And, you know, he had some kids and he divorced his wife. And then he had a, a lady living with him and helping him run his ranch. And so I came up to him and I had long hair and, you know, not Fiji hair, but, uh, uh, I said, Dave, you know, I grew up on a horse. I can ride. I can help you. I, cause he needs somebody to go out. He had 250,000 acres <laughs> of forest service lease land. Okay. He didn't own it. He leased it from the forest service and on this and the forest service based on how much feed there was. And there was no feed because it was a desert. They would tell you how many cows you could run on this land. And so the number was 150. He could have 150 mother cows on this 250,000 acres. And twice a year, you had to go out and round up these 150 cows and bring them back and breed them to the bulls so that they would make babies to make, you know, hamburger out of. And so that was the way it worked. And so every twice a year, you got to go out and round up the cows and bring in the, bring in the babies and brand. And I was a cowboy. I was a cowboy, just like in the movies. And I always wanted to be a cowboy. My, you know, when I was a kid, all I did was watch westerns and, you know, I watched all those westerns and all those big stars started as, you know, Steve McQueen wanted dead or alive or they all cowboys. John Wayne and every Clint. And now, I mean, they all, I wanted to be a cowboy. And so I got to be a cowboy. And so I would ride out on my horse. He gave me a horse and I'd ride out. And it wasn't as hard as it sounds to find cows because there was no water. So the cows would always be near the water. And so you'd go to wherever the river was and you'd round up cows because they would be there drinking water. So it round them up and bring them back to the ranch. And then you'd separate out the boys from the girls. And then the boys were, you know, castrated. This is fascinating. But how do we get from here to rock and roll? <laughs> oh, sorry. Well, when I was a kid, before I left, I used to go watch bands in Phoenix. I mean, you know, Alice, Alice started in Phoenix, Cooper. And he had a band called the Earwigs. And I used to go watch them. and. Roger Steen and Prairie Prince 
And a guy named David had a trio in Phoenix called the Red, White, and Blues Band. And they used to play at a little club called the VIP in downtown Phoenix. And I used to go to this club all the time to listen to music, live music. And they, they were great. They were a great band. And they, you know, they did all this original material. And Roger used to play Jimi Hendrix songs because he loved Hendrix. And so I would go see them and I became friends with them. And I was, you know, kind of just a hanger on her. And I, you know, I was looking for some way, you know, to get into music somehow. And so, uh, when I moved to the mountains, when I moved to the Verde Valley, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I everyone, you know, I go back to town to get whatever, get, ask my parents for money or something. And I would say, you know, this is so great up here. And, and they, uh, every once in a while, they would drive their truck up there. Uh, they had a big, they had a milk truck that was converted into their equipment truck. And they would, they had a generator. And they would drive up to the mountains and set their gear up out in the desert and just play to the cactus, right? And uh, the guy that I worked with, his name was Michael Walker. He met a girl and they wanted to get married and they wanted a band for the wedding at the, at the Perkins place. And I asked Roger, I said, you want to, you know, they, these guys have like 200 bucks or something and they need a band to play for the wedding. And, and so you want to come up and do it? And they said, yes. So they came up and they played at Michael Walker's wedding. Okay. And when they did, they, what happened was when Prairie Prince graduated from high school he was a, an, uh, an artist. He's still an artist. He's, he's the one that does all of our album covers and everything. Uh, Prairie got a scholarship to the San Francisco Art Institute to begin school in the fall of 1969. And uh, up until that point, they had no roadie, that, the band. They didn't have anybody. And so when they came up to play for the wedding, they said, hey, do you want to? Do you want to be actually, <laughs> actually the bass player asked me if I wanted to be in the band and play logs, African logs. And I said, logs? He goes, yeah, you know, we'll get these big logs that are like hollowed out and you can play them. It's kind of a, I went, but also we need you to drive the truck to San Francisco. I went, oh, oh I see. Okay. And I, by that time, by that time, after being on the ranch for about a year and a half, being a cowboy, I, I made $50 a month plus room and board to be the cowboy. And I said, I kind of got, I kind of said, well, you know, I kind of done this whole cowboy thing. Okay. And so I said, okay. So I drove the truck in the, in the summer of 69, I drove the truck to San Francisco and, uh, and that's how it all started. That's how I became a roadie to the band. And, you know, we got a little house in, in the Sunset District and we would do little gigs here and there. And I was the roadie and I, I had no idea at all about any kind of electronic knowledge. I had no knowledge. I, I, I knew to 
put the ON switch in the ON position. And that was the extent of my knowledge. And so how do you end up in the band? Uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you. Uh, they had a manager. Okay. We had a young, a guy named John Spear who was the manager and he was also their like high school friend. He had no idea, but he was a hustler and he was, you know, he, uh, uh, he got us a gig to play at this 1970 Expo 70 in Osaka, Japan. Okay. It was an ex exposition, world exposition in Osaka. And he got us a gig to play at the San Francisco Pavilion. Okay. Like five sets a day. And the, and the, we at, it's funny because at the time we had changed the name. Roger's band was called the Red, White, and Blues Band, right? The trio. And they had, they, for some reason, I don't know why actually, they had changed the name to Arizona. Okay. And John got them to hire us at the San Francisco Pavilion. But the guy goes, you know, you really can't, it's not going to work for a band be, to be called Arizona representing San Francisco. And so he goes, how about they went, well, how about if you just take the A off the end? You could be Arizona. Okay, great. Okay. So we went, we, and, and he also got us the, the transportation. There, back in back then, there was a, a a shipping company called the American President Lines. It was a it was a it wasn't like a Princess Cruises or Celebrity Cruises. It was a a company that actually just it was a a, a ship that transported you to Japan. It was a big passenger liner, right? And he got us a gig to play on the ship for our passage. You could go for free. All you have to do is play two, two concerts on the ship. And then, and so that was actually the first time I actually performed in front of an audience. I became the opening act for the, for Arizona. And I had my, cause I used to play guitar and I used to sit out there in the desert and play Roy Orbison songs to the cactus. And just sing like Bob Dylan songs and folk songs. And so I knew a couple of songs. And they said, well, you be the opening act. You can play your folk songs. And so I would play Roy Orbison song or a Bob Dylan song and play a couple of songs and I'd be the opening act. Well, what happened on the trip? <laughs> on the way over there, we got caught smoking pot in our, in our stateroom. And they kicked us off the ship in Hawaii. And so then we had to wait for the next one to come. There was a, they had about five or six. They had the President Wilson and the President Roosevelt, and they had all these ships named after presidents. And so we got on the second one, and we made it to Japan. And then uh, we did the, we played for six weeks at this at Expo Seventy at the San Francisco Pavilion, and you know we we. You know, it was great. Oh, God, I never, it was wonderful. And, uh, you know, we met Japanese girls and, well, oh, we had such a great time. And on the way back, same thing. We got caught smoking pot in the ship. <laughs> 
And so they didn't kick us off the ship, but they stuck us in the steerage compartment where there was all these bunk beds, you know, with Filipinos smoking cigars, which was pretty hurting. And, but then David, the bass player, he, there's, there's like a preacher on board. This is, I mean, you could, you have to write a book. I mean, this is ridiculous. He gets caught having sex with the preacher's daughter. Okay. <laughs> I know I'm, this is, I mean, I'm being honest. This is true. And so they kicked us off the boat again in Hawaii. And so, uh, and we met some hippies in Hawaii and we went and stayed at their place and, you know, smoked pot all day long. And so then we got the next boat back to the next president line, back to San Francisco. So when we got back, they were so mad at this guy, David, that they kicked him out of the band. Okay? They kicked him out of the band. And so then there's just Roger and Prairie and and... I used to sing his, he was the lead singer of the band, David. And so they, they still, we would still practice in our garage in the house on Noriega. And I would go down and sing his parts. And, you know, we just screw around playing, singing. And they tried to find another bass player. And we put an ad in the Haight Ashbury Free Press, bass player wanted. And we, they auditioned all these guys. And, and they didn't like any, they were, none of them were good enough to, to be in the band. And so another band, Bill Spooner's band, based on our recommendation, they had a band called the Beans. Okay. And the, and Bill moved his band from Arizona to San Francisco also. And they, they were a four piece band, the Beans. They had a drummer, keyboard, bass, guitar and uh and the and they had a manager named lauren and lauren and john were good friends and after a while they kind of gave up trying to find a bass player and john talked lauren into letting roger and prairie join bill's band so there would be two drummers two guitar players and 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 I talked my, I actually talked myself into being the background singer. And Roger said, yeah, you know, he's a pretty good singer. He's been singing in the garage with us. And, and, you know, nobody was getting paid. So it really didn't mean anything. And, uh, there was not like another mouth to pay. Uh, so I became the background singer for the Bills band, the Beans. And we were the Beans. And didn't, we didn't have many gigs, but, you know, we we got a few gigs here and there, and I was the background singer, and I'd sing background vocals, and uh, I sang too loud. That's what they kept saying, dude. You're the background singer, okay? You sing too loud. You're supposed to blend in. You're not blending. You're too. F-. And then finally, instead of kicking me out of the band, they said, "Well, why don't you sing lead? Why don't you sing this?" And then you know we used to we we did a few cover songs, and and I said, you know, I used to, I used to do this uh, when I was in in elementary school at Lolama at Scottsdale Lolama Elementary School. They would have an assembly where you would do, uh, you would do, you would perform 
you know, you could do some kind of act. And if you, you know, it was a competition. It was like, you know, Battle of the Bands, only only there weren't any bands. And I I one time uh I <laughs> my bit was uh I would dress up like a soldier and I would sing this song. I would actually uh lip sync this song called Please Mr. Custer. Remember that song? Actually I don't. Please, Mr. Custer, I don't wanna go. And <laughs> And in the song, the guy gets shot by the Indians. And he goes, and the arrow would come. Sorry. And he would die. And I would take a a baggie, a Ziploc baggie, and put stage blood in it. And when the part of the song came for the guy to get killed, and the the arrow sound was on the record, I would slap the baggie and blood would come. I wear a white shirt and the blood would squirt out and I would fall and I would die. And so I, I, I said, you know, I have this, I could, I could do this cowboy. I have this funny cowboy bit I could do. And that's kind of, kind of, we kind of started with the theatrics with that kind of thing. And I said, I, and so I would dress up like a cowboy and I wear, I'd make these furry, those Hopalong Cassidy furry shaps I made out of carpet. <laughs> and, and I would put wear a white cowboy shirt and put the baggie underneath my shirt with blood in it. And we used to do this song by Marty Robbins called El Paso. Remember El Paso? Mm-hmm. Out in the West Texas town of El Paso. And anyway, in the same, in the song, the guy gets shot. And he would get shot, and then I'd slap the bud, and the blood would go all over, and I uh, would die. And oh my God, they, they thought that was just the greatest thing. And so that's how it started. And then we started doing, okay, well, let's do this kind of bit. Let's do. I used to do Carmen Miranda, and we would sing Brazil, and I would, you know, Carmen Miranda had a big headdress of fruit, and so I would make. Only hers was fake, and I would wear platforms, and I would put real fruit on my head, and then I would like eat the grapes as I was singing, and we sang Brazil, Brazil, and in Portuguese, I would sing it in Portuguese, Abel Brazil, Brasileiro, and uh, and do Carmen Rant. and so we, I started developing these characters, and and uh, and then Quaalude, and then. You know, it just, (laughs) and then what? The rest is history, I guess. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, 
or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safty, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. So how do you get a record deal with A&M? We, did, we started with the traditional method of sending cassettes out, you know, sending a little cassette out to everybody. We sent cassettes out to all the companies. We got nothing. And uh, at that point, we, we had met this guy named Kenny Ortega. And Kenny Ortega was, uh, at, at that point, he was just a, he was a dancer, and he he had just come back from a regional tour of Jesus Christ Superstar, and he was like a dancer, and he wanted to become a choreographer. And he saw us playing in a little club in San Francisco, and 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 trying to do this theatrical stuff. And he came to us and he said, "You know, I I can I can refine this. I can I can do this. I can do this." I can help you guys. So we said, okay. And so we brought him on. And I think it was Kenny's idea, actually. He said, let's do a, let's do a video of, of the, of, of you doing your theatrics and doing Quaalude and doing all these, and send the video at, out. So that's how we got signed. We sent AM a videotape of us performing live and doing Quaalude and this guy at AM, his name was Kip Cohen. He was a AR guy. And he thought it was great. He went, Oh my God, these guys are so fucking weird. And, you know, and and they're good. They can play and they've got this other whole theatrical thing going. So they signed us. And uh uh AM was so great. And, you know, back when they it was at the Charlie Chaplin Studios on La Brea. And uh and it's in Herb and Jerry. I mean, Herb used to, I mean, uh, yeah, Herb used to sit around and it was kind of like a little enclave. It was like a, 
The parking lot was in the middle and all the buildings were around the outside. It was like a, a big square and, uh, and Jerry's office. And they had the, on one side was a, the recording studio. They had a recording studio and we'd go there and, and Herb was just, Herb had his own office and he just sat there and played his horn all day long. So it was just Herb played his horn and we were, you know, if we went to do like do an interview or do or, or record in their studio uh, or paint, we painted flying records on the side of the wall and, you know, just to get, get a little extra money. And uh, it was great. It was, and it was so great. So how does the name get changed from the beans to the tubes? Good story there. Uh, another band from New Jersey came out with a record on, I can't remember what label it was on, but they were called Beans. Just Beans, no the. Uh, just Beans. Uh, and they came out with an album. And I mean, I remember calling the record. We had the album and went, oh my God, there's somebody, another band called the Beans. What, you know? And so I even called the record company. I said, dude, we're the Beans. We're in San Francisco. We're the Beans. You can't be the Beans. And he went, yeah, well, tough shit. We published, you know, you're done. Sorry. So we had to pick a new name. And uh, we, we, we went, we sat down and we went, look, we got to change the name. Okay. So every, every, your assignment is to, uh, come up with 10 names and we're going to put them all in a hat and then we're going to pick out a name and that's going to be it. And every, and everybody put in, came up the gas men, the, uh, another, what was another Larry and Mary. Uh, I mean, there was all kinds of weird names and, uh, Mike Cotton, the synth, actually, he wasn't even in the band at the time. He wasn't, he was the synthesizer player and, uh, he had this gear and, but he really didn't know how to use it at that point. And, uh, but he was a friend and he was from Arizona and he was living with us and helping. And so he put in, uh, tubes, rods and bulbs, tubes, rods and bulbs. And, which which are different kinds of cells of the eyeball, okay? And he thought, this is perfect. We're visual. So why not, you know, have a name that refers to some kind of visual reference? And, but what happened was we we decided to let our dog pick the name. We had a, Prairie had a dog named Sandwich. It was like a, a Ridgeback, Mix was a great dog. Sandwich was a great dog. And they put mayonnaise on the slip of paper that said tubes, rods, and bulbs. And Sandwich went right for the mayonnaise and picked out tubes, rods, and bulbs. And we went, okay, tubes, rods, and bulbs. And we went, boy, but it's, you know, it's a kind of a tongue twister, you know? Tubes, rods, and bulbs. And they're going to end up shortening it to like TRB or something. So he said, well, let's just make it the tubes, you know, the tubes. And it's, you know, the boob tube and, you know, cathode ray tube, laser tubes, uh, 
fallopian tubes. We try, we were at at one point we were going to well let's make it the like a real ref a, a, a TV reference because we're visual and we'll make it the boob tubes. No boobs, that's not going to work. You can't just say boobs in, in the name of your band. So we just shortened it to the tubes. Okay. How do you end up working with Al Cooper on the first album? It was a record company's choice. Al was just, you know, Al was, you know, he, I really didn't understand, you know, why, but they thought we were kind of bluesy and he was a blues guy. And I, I don't, I don't know, but, you know, he was, he was, he was a piece of work. I'll tell you, Al was great. And, uh, 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 he actually, and we had, and, and we we went through all the songs, and we finally picked the songs that we were going to be on the record. Al wanted to, you know, when we had this one song, "White Punks on Dope," and Al said, you know, there's a long, there was a long instrumental part, and we also had this other song called "Malagueña Salorosa," which is a, you know, a Mexican song, and uh, we kind of actually we. There was a band in at in Japan at the Mexican Pavilion, and they were an incredible mariachi band. And they played. We got that song, but we recorded them playing Malagueña Salarosa, and we made our own version of it. And that, actually, that came from Japan. But uh, Al wanted to stick that in the middle of White Punks. He said, "As as we fade down, and before we come back up." We'll go right to Malagania and stick it in the No, Al, no, we can't. So we didn't anyway, we didn't do that. And uh but uh we were at the we were at uh uh Sunset Sound back when it was uh on Third Street. And uh and when we were doing White Punks on Dope, we wanted, you know, we wanted a big uh we wanted a big group to sing the big chorus, white punks on dope. And so we went down, there was another band uh, playing down the hall and, uh, and we didn't know who they were. And uh, we just said, can you guys come and help us? And can you all sing this big chorus with us and white punks on dope? He went, yeah, sure. Can we come down? Well, it turns out it, it was the Eagles. Okay. <laughs> and, and but they wouldn't let us put their name on the record. You know, they said, oh, we can't do that because that's, you know, that's. Okay. So the album comes out or is the band happy with the album? I wasn't happy. I mean, I, I loved, you know, I was so thrilled to be, to make it actually make our first record. I mean, I was overjoyed. I was so thrilled. And, and as was everyone, we, you know, it was really a lot of fun and, uh, uh, but we had created this song, What Do You Run From Life? And they, the record company said, well, this, I think this is the first single, What Do You Want From Life? And, uh, uh, you know, and, and it has the, the, the kind of the, the, the end part when, you know, if you're an American citizen, you're entitled to a heated kid in a shape pool. Uh, Microwave oven, don't want the food, dining gym. I'll personally demonstrate in the privacy of your own, on and on and on and on. How about a new car? You know, a Winnebago, a herd of Winnebagos. We're giving them away. That was from Cal Worthington. And uh, Cal Worthington used to be in Arizona. 
before California. And we had all these references to, well, they cut the, the first, the, what, the first thing they did was cut all that out and edited the song without that. They went, oh, well, if we, I said, but that's the, that's what makes it so hilarious and unique. And, you know, they went, yeah, but you're going to, you'll be, you'll be earmarked as a novelty band if you leave this in. So, uh, so they cut it out and it, you know, it didn't really do anything as a, as a first single. Okay. So you make the record with Al, which I believe is your best work and certainly a classic, some of Al's best work. The next record has Don't Touch Me There, but right. it's done with Ken Scott. Right. But what what was the band's view on the final product there? <laughs> Ken Scott probably didn't say 10 words the whole time we made that record. You know, and we made it at at Studio A on the lot at AM. And uh, you know, we'd we'd go out and and play and we'd come back in and well, Ken, how was it, Ken? And Ken would just sit there and kind of go, wasn't perfect. And that's it. And no, nothing else. And, you know, he was, I guess, a brilliant engineer, you know, and, you know, I, okay, well, let's go back out and do it again. And, but Don't Touch Me There actually charted. So that was our, our first, our first charted single, uh, and uh, uh, which actually was not written by us. It was written by Jane, Jane Dornacker, who was one of the two bets, and a guy named Ron Nagel. And, uh, uh, you know, we were thrilled. We, I mean, we got a, we were, in, we made the top 40, you know? So, uh, and that was, that song was a great, visually really great. We, we used to, uh, we'd go into a town and we'd uh, we'd get somebody to loan us their Harley Davidson, Harley Davidson motorcycle. Cause we, we used to do this. It was like a, you know, the, the bad boy Marlon Brando from the wild one and the girl. And we would do the song on a motorcycle and I would ride the thing onto the stage you know, and rev it up and get smoking, you know, really loud. And, and then we would sing, don't touch me there. And, uh, and, uh, and the funny thing was with, I mean, the bit with the song was the, there was her knee, you know, and I would be trying to touch her knee. No, 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 no. So it was a parody. And, uh, so, you know, we used to, uh, every time we, you know, and for a while, I mean, for a while we, uh, uh, we had a, we had, well, eventually they, they wouldn't let us bring a combustible Indian engine machine into the gig, un, into the venue. You couldn't bring a motorcycle on stage, you know, to a fire hazard. So we, we kind of built this fake motorcycle out of a frame and tin cans and shit. And we would have Mike on his ARP 2600 synthesizer fake the noise of a, of a, of an engine. And, uh, so that was, you know, 
Okay, and how did Ree Styles end up in the band doing that duet with you? Well, Ree was a Prairie's girlfriend, okay? And she was gorgeous and, you know, she was not shy, okay? She was willing to, you know, show her breasts and, and just, she kind of started as a, you know, uh, she started as just one of the dancers. You know, we had five dancers. We had Leela and the Snakes. We had Leela and this 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 troupe of of uh, of four girls that we found in a little club on Polk Street in San Francisco. And we would we they were the dancers, and so Kenny would choreograph them, and they would, and then. Re would do kind of special stuff. She would do bondage with me and she would do, she would play various parts like the other girls did. And, uh, and then we kind of realized, you know, she's a pretty good singer. And so we started having, she kind of worked her way into being a featured vocalist with us. So how does Mingo Lewis end up in the band? <laughs> Mingo Lewis. Uh, well, he was a drummer friend of Prairie's, you know, in San Francisco. And, uh, you know, he started, you know, he said, oh, just let me, you know, let me sit in with you guys. And and he would bring his congas and he was just incredible. I mean, I'm sure he still is. Uh, and he would play his congas and say, oh, God. And, and uh, we always loved the idea of two drummers uh when we first when we first joined bill's band we had two drummers there was a, a bill had a drummer named bob mcintosh and and prairie and bob would play together and bob was like the really solid you know really solid guy and prairie was the flourish you know ad lib kind of guy and they really were great together and Bob unfortunately died of cancer in uh before we ever got a deal in I think 72 he got lymph node cancer and it just killed him and it was really sad and uh so we always kind of liked the idea of two drummers and then so when Mingo started you know we said well okay that's great let's go back to two drummers and then we we did a couple of tours with him and uh he wrote that song Godbird Change on the third album. And and we, you know, we carried two drummers and he was guy was incredible. He's a great, great player. But you made him a full member of the band. Okay. The next album, you end up doing a cover of Captain Beefheart's My Head is My Only House and right. Unless It Rains from Clear Spot. Right. His most commercial work at that point, most accessible. How'd you end up doing that? How'd you end up meeting Beefheart? We were huge Beefheart fans. I mean, that he was in it. I mean, we loved Beefheart. We, I, you know, we had seen him quite a number of times in San Francisco, uh, his band play. And, you know, Zappa too. We were big Zappa fans. We loved Frank Zappa and saw Mothers of Invention quite a few times. And, uh, you know, we were just, we we found out that Beefheart lived out in Lancaster and we got a hold of him. You know, we had seen him a number of times and we got a hold of him and we asked, he also played his, his horn on Kathy's clone on that album. And, uh, and we told him, yeah, we're going to do, 
we're going to do one of your songs. My head is my only house. And, uh, and we got him into the studio and, uh, and, uh, let him just, I mean, we just said, here's the song, just go, just freak out, you know? And, uh, uh, he was such a cool guy. I mean, and, and then, how strange! How strange was he in real life? He wasn't that strange. I don't. I don't. No, he wasn't that strange. He was a pretty normal guy. I mean, he wasn't into drugs or anything like that or alcohol. And we had a fine recording session with him. It was not a problem. And he was great on his soprano sax. You know, on that song. Gosh, I think he did it in just one or two takes. You know, he was so good. And I, at that point, uh, I don't know if he was still performing with his band at that point. Uh, but we used to see, remember the, the drummer Drumbo or would, would, would do a solo with just his hands. He'd break, he'd throw his sticks down and just start playing this kit with his hands. And, and the, and, uh, Zutorn Rolo would, you know, had a, a toaster. He'd turned into a hat and, oh, they, I mean, they were theatrical. I mean, we loved that. We loved the theater. Anybody theatrical. I mean, Alice, I mean, we've played with Alice many, many times. And I, we're, you know, I'm, I've, 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 I, uh, I've done his charities. He's, he's a good guy. Alice is. He, he has a great charity foundation in Arizona. Uh, the Solid Rock Foundation, and uh, we've done his Christmas show, and we've done his golf tournament in April, and uh, we've toured with him in, in I think eighteen that we went to the UK with him and opened for him in big in Wembley. We played Wembley Arena and all these big thirty thousand seaters with him, and have played a lot of gigs with him over the years. You know, Shep is. Shep is a good guy. His manager, Shep Gordon, is a good guy. And uh, uh, so, I mean, we were always kind of drawn to those kind of people, those kind of theatric, you know, the Genesis in the early days that would do a, a visual type of performance or the plasmatics. Remember Wendy O. Williams? I, I saw him at the whiskey. Believe me, I know. Right, really. I knew Wendy. And and I, I always used to kid her because she... She, I said, Wendy, you stole my chainsaw bit. Right. You know, I, I was my bit. And she, you know, I got to ask you, because I remember, you know, seeing you at the Roxy before the album came out. Yeah. And you had a printed list of the songs. And one of them was Rock and Roll Hospital, I believe was the name of the song. Right. Where you ran through the audience with this chainsaw and then said, oh, we're going to have to operate. Whatever happened to that song? Well, it, it never got recorded. It never got recorded. Rock and Roll Hospital never got recorded where I would come out as the doctor and, and you know, the with the chainsaw stabbing through a table with the, and it was a guitar. It was a pregnant guitar. And then I would pull out the little baby guitar and, oh, I, and I, and I don't know. I don't know. We, we, every once in a while we think about, well, I mean, we've brought it back two or three times over the years. And done it just, you know, at, as a as a showpiece, but it never never got recorded. It never got recorded. Welcome to Five Hundred Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos, and I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. 
every week we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears's Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. So how did you end up working with Todd Rundgren? What was that experience like? You know, as, as you probably know, it was Prairie. Prairie knew Todd. And uh, Prairie still plays with Todd. He just went out with him last year. Uh, we, we, have to, we have to book way ahead of time in order to get to book Prairie so that Todd doesn't scoop him up. Uh, uh, but uh, Todd's, we, I, I don't know how, I guess, I'm, I guess it was through Prairie that we met him. Uh, but that album, the first album we did with him, Remote Control, was... Uh, I think, I mean, it was, you know, I always, I uh, you know, the phrase can't beat the demo, right? Right. Where you, you make this great demo and you take it into the studio and then you can't, you know, you try this and you try that and you try, and you try 15 different ways of, of making it better. And then, and they, none of them work. And then you end up going back to the demo again. And I've always thought that, uh, the thing I love about remote control is, uh, uh, we had no time to second guess ourselves. You know, we had a, we, you know, every year we used to, uh, we used to make a record in December, January, February because the tour, would always like start in April 
or March or April, and we would tour all year long in the United States or go to Europe or go wherever. But we tour constantly from like April to the end of the year. Uh, so we had a, a short window of time to create a new record. And we did this like over and over and, you know, whatever, 12 times. And so we had a, we had only a month, I think the month of January in that year that, that we did remote control, which was, I think, 79. And, uh, we didn't have any, you know, and, you know, a- after the first two or three albums, you kind of run out of songs, you know, that you've created all those years before you got the record deal. Right. So we didn't have any songs really. And I had, I had, uh, uh, I'd read this book. I'm a voracious, voracious reader. And I had read this book by Jerzy Kosinski and I'd read all of his books. Uh, the Painted Bird was a great book. And uh, one of his books was called Being There. Okay. And so I had read this book called Being There about the, about the rich kid who was put in a, you know, uh, a boarding school or a, or a daycare and never got to do anything. It was all he did was watch TV and he had no real experience of life. It was all virtual experience. And so I had this idea and I approached Todd with, and I said, you know, this, we grew up in Arizona, the band, and we watched TV all day long because, you know, it was 150 in the summer. (laughs) It was 120 degrees outside. So you weren't, you know, a lot of time was spent watching TV. And that's why I, I, you know, watching all those Westerns, serials uh series on tv and it's kind of where i kind of got the idea that i wanted to be a cowboy so bad and i said let's let's you know i figured oh this book is obscure nobody has ever heard of this book and i'm gonna i'm gonna take this idea and turn it into remote control with todd and you know about the idea of the kid who just has no real experience. It's all virtual experience. He doesn't know anything. He doesn't know about love. He doesn't know about feeling. He doesn't know about anything. It's all TV. And so uh, we had we had some musical material. And uh, so Todd said, he goes, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to show up at the studio every day. And then in the morning, we're going to write the lyrics to a song. And then we're going to take a lunch break, and then we're going to come back, and then we're going to figure out the music and record the song in the afternoon, and then we're going to put on the vocals at night. And by the end of the day, we'll have a whole song. And so that's what we did. We would go in, and we'd all sit down together, all of us, seven of us, with Todd, and say, okay, what's what's the first thing you do? Well, turn me on. Turn it, you turn it on, right? Okay. First song is going to be called Turn Me On. And so we'd sit there and we'd all brainstorm, turn me on, turn me on. And then in the afternoon, we go do the music and then we put the vocals on. Then the next day we come in, okay, now what? Okay. Uh, TV is king. We love TV. Okay. TV is king. That's the next song. 
So, and we did that for the whole record. And, but like I said, we didn't have any time to go back and second guess ourselves and go, oh no, well, this could be a little bit better. And though, if we do a little, you know, echo on this or delay on this or that, or just no, just go with your gut, go with your instinct, go with your first impression and do it. And then you can't change it because you don't have the time or the money because the tour is coming up and the record's got to be released so that it all works. That's why I kind of love that album. And, uh, you know, you're going in the wrong direction commercially with A&M. Right. Then you get dropped. Right. Ultimately picked up by Capital. You know, what was going through the heads of the band when you're having, you know, less and less commercial success and then you're dropped? And how do you get a deal with Capital? You know, give us the background on that. Okay. The, our live performance just, I mean, it was always art for art's sake. I mean, you know, we're going to go out and do a show that's going to blow your mind. We're going to spend money. We don't care if we're in debt. We don't care. It's all about the show. It's about the art. And we really were worried about, you know, every, every time we did a record for A&M, they would give us a, a, an advance. You know, back then it was peanut money. It was like a hundred grand or something. And we never recouped. We never made enough, sold enough records to pay off the advance to make it. But we didn't care because we had a show that blew people's minds. I mean, we created a leg, a visually, a visual performance legacy that's pretty much unmatched by anyone, I think. But so, yeah, we would go out on the road and we would, I mean, one whole, one time for the completion backward principle, I mean, we built a set that was all round. And so you can't pack round stuff in a truck very efficiently, you know? <laughs> so you have to get another truck. Oh, we don't care. Well, fuck it. We don't care. It's So what? So, I mean, a, a couple of times, you know, we ran out of money out on the road and the manager had to call up a and and go, hey, look, they're out of, you know, they're promoting your record. They're on the road. They're out of money. You need to send us some money. So they would send the money and add it to the tab, you know. And uh, so finally that got to be, you know, as you say, that got to be, you know, we ended up leaving A&M just massively in the red. And uh, we, you know, we gave them publishing. We gave them everything we could to just keep doing the show. It was about the show. And uh, so when we went to, I mean, and then, and then, so they dropped us. And so then we, uh, looked every high and low for another company. And we met this guy at, uh, Capital who, who, uh, was a, his name was Bobby Columbi. He was an A&R guy. Okay. And, but he was a drummer. He used to be in Blood, Sweat and Tears. Right? Right. And still owns the name. <laughs> right. Bobby loved Prairie Prince. He just thought, oh my God, this guy is so so Bobby Columbia, as an ANR guy at AM at Capital, convinced them to give us a deal. He gave they gave us a three record deal, but each record was based on the 
performance of the record before it. They say, if the first record does nothing, you're not going to get another record. The second record, you know, so anyway, and, and Bobby had this guy, David Foster, okay? And David Foster, and we thought, oh, God, you know, well, I mean, the only thing we knew about David Foster was he just did Boogie Wonderland. Okay. That was the record before us. Earth, Wind, and Fire, Boogie Wonderland. And he had a number one song with After the Love is Gone. Okay. And we were very skeptical. Okay. We went, oh, and Bobby was saying, well, you guys got to get on the radio. You got to sell records. You've got to, in order to get a second record here, you've got to make a name. You've got to do something commercially. So, oh, God, we just went, oh, man. And then, so David Foster came up to San Francisco and uh, to meet with us and, you know, to kind of check out our songs and stuff. And, and I mean, I, I mean the, guy's, the guy's unbelievable, okay? He is a brilliant mus- musician, a brilliant arranger. I mean, he came up. And we said, okay, he goes, okay, well, play me some songs. I said, okay, well, okay. So we played him this song, Amnesia. And he goes, well, okay. And then he sat down on the piano and he kind of goes, you know, he goes, what if you kind of did a modulation here and kind of a big, kind of put in this kind of ooh part and kind of, and we were just going, oh, oh." You know, he, I mean, he just floored us. He floored us with his brilliance. And we just went, wow, man, this guy, this guy, this is amazing, you know? And, and like, like, uh, he said, what about ballads? You know, you have any ballads? He went, well, you know, we did a ballad on the last record and, you know, it wasn't a single. And he goes, you know, the, the company's looking for a ballad. They're looking for a ballad to be the first single because ballads are happening. You know, it's 1980. Everybody has got a big rock ballad coming out. Journey, REO. I mean, all these bands were having huge success with ballads. And we just kind of went, well, you know. But Vince, our keyboard player, Vince Welnick, uh, he said, well, you know, I have this kind of progression I've been working on. And so he started playing uh, Don't Want to Wait Anymore for David. And David went, wow. And then, you know, David sits down and goes, oh, 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 and, then, and then you put a modulation and then the big finish and then the chorus out and the, you know, payoff and and he said, man, this is it. This will this will work. And I had written the lyrics to it. Uh, he goes, let me hear the lyrics. So I wrote, gave him the lyrics. He goes, man, this is this is what they're looking for. This is what Capital's looking for, a ballad like this. And so we just kind of went, this guy, okay, you know, this guy's incredible. Okay, let's we're good with this. Okay, let's do it. We're good with this. And uh, <clears throat> at the time, we had a, a manager. His name was Ricky Farr, and Ricky Farr was a Welshman who 
who had a big sound and lights company. Uh, and he used to do the, the, uh, the sound and lights touring for big, you know, Rod Stewart and Stevie wonder. And just, you know, he was a big time company and he had never managed a band before. And he was the one that first took us to England. He goes, you guys with your kind of sarcasm and your, uh, parody, they're going to love you in the UK. So he took us right away. The, the first thing he did was take us to England. And, uh, and that was a really smart move. I mean, we are huge in England and, uh, or in the UK. And, uh, so, uh, you know, we just, we, 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 we went for it right away. We went for David Foster and, uh, and we did that. We did, you know, I, I actually, uh, uh, we, we, you know, we got toward the end of the recording of the record and when well, we still had weird songs, we still had, you know, Mr. Hate and Attack of the 50 Foot Woman. And, you know, it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like it was all so commercial. And so, you know, we wanted to maintain our weirdness and, uh, uh, and we got to the end of the project and he goes, well, you know, we, we, I know they want to release a, a ballad, but, uh, uh, they all, they want, they, we need a rock song. We need a, a AOR kind of rock song. And we play, you know, we, he goes, I, I, I don't hear it. I don't, you know, I don't, you haven't played it. You don't have that. And so he was the one that said, you know, I have a friend, this, this studio musician guy who's in a band called Toto. His name is Steve Lukather. And he goes, how about if we meet, you and I and Steve meet, and we try to come up with a rock song? And so we did. And we met uh, early one morning out in the valley here. And uh, and Steve came up with Talk to You Later in about 10 seconds. And, I mean, the guy is brilliant. And and so, you know, we, we, we uh, recorded Talk to You Later and... Uh, and he says, okay, I mean, that's, we got it, you know? And I think, you know, that uh, I told you before, we were doing Completion Backward Principle. I think Completion Backward Principle was our greatest record. Uh, I mean, I love the first album, but uh, we've been doing Completion Backward live uh, the whole album, like top to bottom starting with talk to you later and right on through the whole album. And it's really gotten a great response. And I love those songs. I love amnesia. I love Mr. Hate. I completely go mental. I mean, I, I could be a ax murderer if, if with Mr. Hate. I love it. I love that. I mean, I, I love the, I love you know, I, I do these characters and I lose myself, you know, I just completely lose myself in the character and in the, and I, I, sometimes I, I, I get a little out of control, but, uh, you know, it's so great to be able to do that, to have the venue, to be able to do that, you know? So you make that record, you have a certain amount of success, then you team up together and you even have more success. So tell me about Outside Inside. You know, we had we had great success, as you say, and we get ready to do the next record. 
and and Foz says, you know, let's let's try it again with you and Luke and I. Let's try it again. And so we got together and we wrote She's the Beauty in about 10 minutes. And I mean, once again, Luke's just, you know, crazy, crazy good. And uh uh we had a great time recording that record and 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 you know we would uh, it would have been even a bigger selling record if it hadn't been for this guy named Val Garay who was the manager of Martha Davis and I had known Martha for a long time and we wanted to do we wanted to do a duet on the record and and so we we picked this song Mon- Monkey Time Curtis Mayfield song and Martha came in and we did a duet on Monkey Time. And uh, it was, I mean, Foz just said, okay, this is great. This is going to be the second single after She's a Beauty. And, but then when we get ready, you know, She's a Beauty is the big hit. Goes to number two. <laughs> I, yeah, that's, you know, I mean, I so wanted a number one record, but I mean, it, it was so good for us and so great. And, and, uh, and, you know, it's still people go crazy when we play that song. And so we're ready to follow it up with a second song, second single monkey time. And her manager, the manager of the motels, this guy says, no, you can't release this. Uh, this is, we've got a motels record coming out in about six months, and this is going to hurt, it's going to hurt that. It's going to hurt the sales of this record. And everybody flipped out, okay? I mean, at this time, at this point, we had, uh, we were with a management company, uh, Fitzgerald Hartley, and they also managed Toto, and Mark and Larry, you know, we went to the record company and we went, no, no, no. This is only going to help you. This is going to help your Motel's record. No, no. And Motel's were also on Capitol. And he injuncted it. He went to the record company and said, you can't put this out. I refuse to let you. I'm going to injunct it. I'm going to sue you. I'm going to. And I, everyone was just flabbergasted. We couldn't understand it. And, and he did it and we couldn't release it. We had to go, you know, we fought it for, I don't know, a long time. And finally we realized, no, they're not going to do it. You've got to, if you want to do it, you have to re-record it. You have to peel out her vocal and re-record it. And so we went back in the studio and we replaced her vocal with uh, uh, one of our one of our dancers at the time, Michelle Gray, her name is, who ends, who is now Todd's wife, and uh, and she did a wonderful job. It sounded great, but it was six months later. The whole the everything was gone, momentum gone, you know, and so it never happened. It never it never charted. And, you know, the momentum of the record, that was it. The record was done. (sighs) 
Okay, so after all that success with Foster, how do you decide to then work with Todd again, which ultimately kills the band? I was hoping you wouldn't ask that. <laughs> but uh, I don't know how to say this, but I think it was for the best. As I look back in retrospect, I think it was time for me to move on. But of course, I didn't know that then, did I? Uh, and I, everybody flipped out. What happened was, David came, you know, David was booked to do the third album. And uh, David came and sat down with the band and he goes, okay, look, we had great success with Talk to You Later, even more success with She's a Beauty. So what I want to do is I want to write four songs with Fee and Luke and I like we did on Talk to You Later and She's a Beauty. And so that way I've got a, I've got a first, second, and third, and fourth single, and, you know, one you know, a couple of them bound to work, and it's going to be, you know, it's going to be huge. It's going to be a big, massive record. And, uh, and on the B side, you guys can do whatever you want. You can produce it. You can write it. You can do any songs you want. You can I don't care. You can do whatever you want. And I will let you do whatever you want. And all I want is side A. That was what he pr proposed to the band. And I, everyone, everyone said, and, and so, and the band said, you know, I don't, we don't want to do that. No, we're a band. You can't tell us what to do. We're a band. And I was the only one going, man, guys, you got to, you know, don't, don't, don't let your pride vault, you know, kill us here. It's, it's okay. You know, it'll be okay. And no, they wouldn't do it. I don't know. In retrospect, I understand, you know, it's, they, their pride was hurt. They felt, you know, we're a band. You can't tell us what to do. Uh, and, and also they were, you know, they were, I think, a little miffed that the two hits that we had, we had were written by me and Steve and David. And, uh, so they said, no, we're not going to do it. And the, the management said, don't do this. The record company said, don't do this. I said, don't do this. The agency said, don't do, everyone said, don't do this. And they went, nope, we're, we're doing, that's what we're doing. And so they got Todd back on the phone and they said, you know, and they made, and I, I, I was devastated. I have to say, I went to LA and I said, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, and, and I made a record. I made a, I made my first solo record, uh, with David Foster because he was there sitting there available. And I talked the record company into letting me use him for a solo album. And they said, okay. And then the band went ahead without me in San Francisco and made a record with Todd. And, and I came back and I, you know, I, I got my record done and I came back to San Francisco and they went, well, you know, our record's almost done. And, you know, you can, we've got a couple of songs that you can sing if you want. 
And, you know, up until that point, I had pretty much sung every record, every song on the record. And so I was pretty much crushed. And I, I, I sang a couple of, you know, I, I brought them one song, uh, that I didn't use on my solo record piece by piece. And we d- recorded that. And then I sang, I did another song that I wrote about Marlon Brando, Stella. I've, I've written, <laughs> I love Marlon Brando. He's the best. I, I, I've, I've written a whole bunch of songs over the years about Marlon Brando. I could have been somebody about the, you know, on the waterfront. And I wrote Stella from Streetcar Named Desire. And, uh, so anyway, I ended up doing just three songs on the record. And, uh, it didn't do well. As you know, it didn't do well. And, uh, I, 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 at, 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 we, and we went out and did the tour and the tour didn't do well and everything kind of crumbled around us. The management said, well, you know, we're going to have to release you guys because this was a huge mistake. And then, you know, the record company pretty much released us the day the tour began. <laughs> so, you know, the tour starts in April 1st and on, on March 31st, they release us. And so we go out and we have all this national tour booked. We've got no record company support, no A&R guys, no promotion, no record play, no radio play. I mean, nothing. We got nothing. So it didn't go well. And so I got back. We got back and uh, I just went, you know, it's, we we. The management had left us. I, I mean, I was so discouraged. And so, uh, and I thought, you know, well, I guess this is, this is, this is, this could be great. I, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to start my own life. You know, I had been, you know, we had been a seven man band for, at that point, we had been a seven man band for about 15 years. And we did everything together. We split everything evenly. We were a bunch of hippies. Okay. We were a bunch of hippies and whatever it was, everybody decided together. We did it all together. It was all together. And I just thought, you know, it's time to grow up. It's time to be a man and grow up and, and take responsibility for yourself. And so I said, okay, guys, you know, I'm going to leave the band. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to leave town. Pretty much I had to leave town. And so I did. So I just packed up and I got in my car and I drove to LA. And uh, I had a girl, I had a girlfriend at, a to- at the time that I was living, that was living in LA and her, uh, her parents owned some apartment buildings in LA, in LA. So they gave me an apartment, you know, really cheap because I didn't have any money. And, you know, we spent everything on the show and I didn't have much money. And so they gave me a cheap apartment and I moved here and, and I, you know, I, I just, I just, you know, and you know what happened was I started writing songs with Richard Marks and I thought, you know, and I just had blind faith. I just thought, well, you know, I gotta, I've gotta 
make my own life. You know, I've, I've been, I've been a, a part of a group for so long and I've got to stand up for myself and I've got to, you know, I've got to get my shit together. And I, and, you know, I had known Richard and, and I think at the time we had maybe written a couple of songs together. I think we wrote, uh, had written, uh, that Vixen hit, you know, uh, I've been living on the edge of a broken heart and we had a big hit with that. And so I said, I said, let's write. He said, I want to be, this was before he had a record deal before he had just at, at the, at that point he was just a songwriter and had written songs for a lot of other people, Kenny Rogers and, and, uh, a lot of people. And so he said, I want to be, uh, I want to be a, an artist. I want to perform. So he got a deal at, uh, Manhattan subsidiary of capital. And he said, let's write some songs for my record. And I said, okay, great. So we did. So I think we wrote, I wrote four songs for him on his first record. And, you know, he, he's, he is a big hit. First record sold 3 million albums, I think. And, uh, and, uh, and then we, you know, the next record, and I wrote more songs for him on the next record, and the next record, and the next record, and and I just, you know, I I thought to myself, you know, this is this is this is the right thing to do, you know, I I I I, I you know, that the way things happened wasn't great, but it was good for me because I stood up and and. You know, I was a man. I stood up and said, "Okay, I'm good. I'm 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 gonna go. I'm gonna lead my own path. You know, lead my own way." So, how did you meet Roger uh, Richard Marks? I met him. He wrote a song for in in '83. He wrote a song for Lionel Richie, and he came to L.A. to see him record it. He got at 18 years old. He placed a song with Lionel. The guy's brilliant. Okay, his dad was a jingle writer in Chicago. He wrote the double mint gum jingle. He wrote, my dog's better than your dog, my kennel ration. <laughs> he wrote all these jingles. So Richard, and he was a keyboard, he was a jazz keyboard player, Dick. His name was Dick Marks. He was an incredible guy, really great. And he taught Richard, you know, music theory and keyboards and writing style. I mean, anyway, Richard came uh, to LA and he wanted to meet David Foster and he knew about him and he asked Lionel and David goes, yeah, he's doing the tubes down the street at lion share. Uh, and, and Lionel set it up where he could, Richard could come to the studio and just watch. And, and he did. He showed up one day when we were in the studio recording and, you know, he's just sitting back there. And, uh, at the end of the session, he goes, he had no, he knew of me and he said, hi, I'm Richard Marks. He introduced himself and he said, you know, I think your lyrics are really interesting. Would you write a song with me? And I said, I don't know who you are. He goes, I'm just a kid from Chicago. And I said, well, okay, okay, no problem. 
let's write a song. And so I did. We wrote a song. We wrote a song called Who Loves Your Baby, which was the tagline for Kojak. <laughs> and which is, I put on my first solo record, Who Loves Your Baby? And, uh, you know, we just kind of clicked. We just, we couldn't be more different. Okay. We couldn't be more different people. Uh, you know, he, he but it's just something. I'm the godfather to his sons. He has got three beautiful sons who are very, very talented musicians. And, uh, you know, I've just, like I said, for like 30, 38, 40 years, we've been best friends and we still write together all the time. And I know his sons very well. And, uh, he lives out here. He lived in Chicago for years and years. And then he, he di divorced his wife and, moved, recently moved to uh, L.A. And uh, so we, we see each other a lot. And, you know, and over the years, we've been we've been working on this record, on the my my solo record of the Fee Weibel Rides Again record. We started making this record, gosh, in 2013, for like seven years ago, we started making it. Well, the made the first song. I used to go every summer when he lived in Chicago, I used to go to... Chicago every summer and his parents had a cabin in Manaqua, Wisconsin, way up in Northern Wisconsin. And we would go with the boys on a boys trip to Wisconsin. We'd drive up there and spend a week at the cabin and go fishing and we'd go horseback riding and we'd go go-kart, you know, just have a great time. And so that summer, the boys were getting older and the summer of 2013, I went up there and I said, well, and we've done other boys trips. We went whitewater rafting in, in Wyoming and we do all some, all some kind of a boys trip. And we went, I went up the summer and the boys said, you know, we don't want to go. We want to hang, like hang out with our girlfriends and go to the movies. We don't want to do a boys trip. And I went, well, I, I came all the way from here. Well, okay. And so Richard said, and he had a studio at his house. And uh, he said, well, let's go write a song. And let's do, and that, he said, let's do a solo record for you. It's about time you did, did you hadn't one, done one since 97, and uh, which he helped me with also. And uh, so we went to the studio and we wrote, uh, we wrote four songs. Fake, the four songs on the record. Faker, we wrote Faker was the first song we wrote. And, uh, and uh, and then, you know, I got busy. He got busy. I went on the road. He went on the road. And, you know, it just years and years kept going by. And we, we never got, you know, back around to it until, until uh, the summer of 2019. He just, he, had, he was here in California. And he goes, let's do it. It's been too long. It's been five years since we started this. Let's go back and finish it. So we did. So we went back to the studio and we finished the record and uh, I'm really proud of it. And uh, 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 like I said, at the beginning, we were, you know, he goes, let's do some gigs. Okay. I'll, 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 I'll give you my band. Okay. And we'll do gigs. And we had it all planned for the, for May of 2020. <laughs> he goes, I, you know, I've got the whole month off. I'm not touring and blah, and we'll do some gigs. And 
And of course, COVID killed it in 2020. And then, and then as we thought the whole pandemic was, was fading away, we plan, we booked more dates for January of this year. And, uh, and then the whole thing got killed again. So how did you get back together with the tubes? I, I left the band in like 87, something like that, and moved to LA and pretty much had no contact with them. They went on for a, a, a while. It's funny. They, they called up the guy, the bass player they had fired, you know, 25 years ago and, and said, you know, we lost our lead singer. You want to come back in the band? So he came back and they went out for a while as the tubes without me and had this guy as the lead singer. But he he had been in Hawaii smoking pot for 25 years and he had no <laughs> voice. He couldn't sing. He couldn't sing. He couldn't hit the high notes. He couldn't sing She's a Beauty. And so they it did not go well. And, you know, and Finally, they gave up and they said, okay, that's it. We're done. And then they hadn't worked for a while. And, uh, and then a, a pro, I, I told you we were, we, we were pretty popular in Europe. Uh, we had done some big during the heyday in like, in like, uh, we went there first time in 77 and then we went back in 78, 79, 81, we, you know, we, we, so anyway, a promoter from Germany, his name was Henning Torgel, contacted the band and said, uh, you guys haven't been here for a while. You know, we hadn't been there since 83. This was 93. He said, I, I, I am going to offer you a 65 show tour of Western Europe and the UK. Uh, but only if fees in the band. That's the deal. And so they called me up and they said, we have this offer, you know, and and I, you know, I was very skeptical and, uh, uh, I said, well, you know, what, what, what is, you know, what's happening with the band? He went, well, you know, uh, Bill was not in the band anymore because of, like I said, drugs and Mike, the synthesizer, he, he left the band when I left, he moved to New York city and he's done very well as a, a graphic designer. And uh, and the keyboard player, Vince, uh, auditioned for the Grateful Dead in 91 uh, when their other keyboard player died. And he got the gig. So Vince is in the Grateful Dead. Mike's gone. Bill's battling addiction. And... They've got another keyboard player, so they're a four-man band with a different keyboard player. And they said, "We you know, this is the story." And nobody's, nobody's, everyone's grown up. You know, we're not doing drugs anymore. You know, I fought them for years. I was the only guy that didn't do drugs. I was the only guy, and it was really difficult, you know, to go into a city and then all they thought about was who's the coke dealer, you know, and 
And they said, no, we're all, we've all grown up. We're not doing it. We're all straight. I said, really? Yeah. And okay. I said, okay. So we did it. So I, I, I went back to the band and we did this 60 show tour in, in, in the spring of 1993. And, uh, and I had so much fun that I just, I said, okay, well, let's keep doing this. And so here we are, gosh, 30 years later, almost. And almost 50 years from the beginning. So fee, thanks so much for doing this. You know, oh. loved hearing about the polo, and certainly I'm a huge Tubes fan. Some of the bottom line, some of the Roxy. Even when one time Hollywood Boulevard, when the first album came out, I was working in a sporting goods store, and you did an in-store at Peaches Records oh. and came dressed up totally as Quaalude. Oh, God, I remember that. I stopped there in my lunch break, so it's a great honor to do this with you. So thanks so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. You know, I... I, I read your letter and I I just you know I think so, I think you're so great and it's really a, a a privilege and an honor to do your podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Till next time, this is Bob Lefsetz. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Carol G. Juan Gabriel. Christina Aguilera. What do these three have in common? You mean apart from impeccable style, chart-topping canciones, and drama? Facts, yes, all of the above are correct. But most importantly, they're some of the biggest Latin icons in the world. And they're just a few of the game-changing Latin stars we're covering in Becoming an Icon Season 2. Listen to Becoming an Icon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.